J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut. I'm Rachel. I write for Films Total about lost cinema and international films. I love the golden age of Hollywood, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. Give us a shout. James here, content creator and stay-at-home husband. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and I also write f- for Films Fatale about no-budget cinema. Hi, Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers of Films Fatale. I love art house and international films, but I love a little bit of everything. Uh, and uh, in case you're not bombarded already, you can check out all of our Academy Awards shenanigans, what we love and what we really don't like about the ceremony and comedies and stuff on films fatales otherwise let's get back to the k-cut welcome this is our movie podcast and um we are 63 episodes into this thing and we are also in the middle of february i felt like this would be a good opportunity to highlight a lot of black cinema since this is black history month and in the first half of the episode i want to give us an opportunity to highlight some of our favorite films by by black filmmakers and their importance you know, when it comes to, you know, telling perhaps like uh, racial storytelling or, um, you know, sharing the black experience uh, with audiences. And in the second half, I wanted to discuss some major, some major strides and improvements that, uh, that we've seen when it comes to marginalized communities or, you know, persons of color in, in the entertainment industry. So I felt like this could be a good opportunity to really focus on some important stuff this week. So uh, who wants to go first with their film of choice? Uh, Okay. So I was trying to think what black film could I highlight that I feel is really important. And the first thing that came to mind is Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It. Something that I know that you are very fond of. You're very fond of this film as uh, a Spike Lee fan and as somebody who loves indie filmmaking. Yes. So I picked this film because it's probably, in my opinion, one of the most important films in black history because it was kind of the first instance where black people were portrayed against type in cinema. You know, Spike Lee didn't grow up in the hood or had like the experience of somebody who was kind of considered lesser than he, you know, his father was a musician, uh, Bill Lee, who also composed the score for this uh, film. You know, he was, he was a very renowned jazz musician and I forgot which neighborhood um, he lived in, but he, he lived in a neighborhood that was filled with artists because when his family moved there, other jazz artists followed. So he was always very cultured and he always noticed that when white people made cinema, it, he didn't, they didn't treat the stories right or do it in a way that actually should have been portrayed. So he, he thought it, it would be important to kind of take control of the narrative himself. Now with, she's got to have it. It does a lot of things that are very forward thinking because it deals with a young woman who's in a polyamorous relationship with three other guys, which is already like very different, especially being this was the mid 80s. But, you know, she's actually an artist. You don't see that very often. And she also speaks very articulate. You know, she doesn't really use slang or have a, a black scent as it's now referred to nowadays. And then even her suitors are very against type because, you know, they're all portrayed as somewhat kind of more intellectual than another person would. You know, you have, um, well, the main character's name is Nola Darling. You have a uh, Jamie Overstreet. He's kind of like, um, he's more of an everyman type, uh, Greer Childs. I believe from her, he's a model. He's like super pretentious and snotty. And then Mars Blackman, who's played by Spike Lee. He's kind of the, what Spike first was a homeboy, but even when he speaks, he's kind of a lot more intelligent than somebody else might've taken with this character. 
And there's also slight uh, LGBTQ uh, representation with the character Opal Gilstrap, who is one of Nola's best friends. And um, I, that one's kind of a that's kind of clunky in approach for representation. It's like it's well intentioned, but it doesn't quite hit the market should. But yeah, it, it's exploring all these different things that you know you don't really see very often. But I I just always love the film because it's portraying a marginalized community in a way that's positive. You know, they're not criminals or people that you should be looking out for. They're people that you want to align yourself with because there's like, I don't know, there's more prestige to them than anybody else would assume. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a really good film and uh, one that opened a lot of doors for Spike Lee as a filmmaker, but also showed, exactly the type of ambition and um you know drive that he had as a filmmaker like he wasn't really answering to anybody else he wanted to make the films that he wanted to make and he proved that from the get-go which i think is very admirable i think it's also important because of his influences too like the stuff that he would cite you know when i'm when i'm reading his journals the stuff he would watch he was watching things like zelig and uh I think a Koyanis Katsi, he, he's watching like more artsier films and you can see that in his work where it's like, you know, you can see the influences or, you know, he, he's a Kurosawa fan. He likes all these different things that just kind of all gelled with what he's trying, the message he's trying to convey. And I, I think it's just, you know, something that I've always loved when people, especially people who are going against type, it shows there's more potential than anyone would give him credit for. And it was quite an obstacle trying to get the movie out there, but you know, he beat the odds. And he continued to do so to this day. Uh, Rachel, what about you? Have you seen this film or have any thoughts? I haven't seen it, but you've reminded me just what a true lover of cinema Spike Lee is. You can tell anytime he talks about film and it's just really great to be reminded of that. I'm going to have to make that a recommendation one of these days for Smorgasbord for you. Sounds good. I feel like a lot of naysayers of Spike Lee are, are quick to point out maybe his electric nature and his outspokenness, but uh, they always forget, like like you've just said, um, his love of cinema, which shines more than anything in his films. And uh, I feel like, you know, a lot of people point out Quentin Tarantino as like the greatest lover of films when it comes to like, you know, showcasing his influences on his sleeve. But I feel like Spike Lee is just as much of an aficionado and he came before. So I feel like he's definitely part of that conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And uh, another filmmaker that I want to highlight is somebody who doesn't get discussed nearly as much anymore. And it's kind of sad because I feel like, and uh, you might actually take a big liking to this filmmaker, James, because uh, this is another case of, of indie cinema. And I'm not going to go with his obvious opus, which is called Killer of Sheep. I'm going to go with his second film, My Brother's Wedding. And that's uh, a film by Charles Burnett, who I feel, again, is such a vital figure when it comes to black storytelling in the 70s and 80s, but also as uh, an important independent filmmaker who was able to tell so much with so little, like the the, the smallest budget. So uh, My Brother's Wedding was only uh, allegedly uh, budgeted at uh, $50,000. And that's after this film that was a huge festival darling killer of sheep so you would kind of expect that maybe he would have gone in a bit more but that wasn't really the case and um yeah my brother's wedding is a very interesting film because it's one that actually was never really finished until many years later 
when uh, Burnett was was finally given the the option to re-edit and re-release the film in the 2000s. Um, and the end result is a really, really touching one. So you have this, this story of uh, unrequited love where, um, you know, two spouses-to-be um, – Sorry, let me let me re- restart that. So you have a, a story of of classes, you know, a higher class, you know, integrating with a lower class, and how there's this um, this what sword I'm looking for. It's been a really long day. I apologize. Um, this uh, this threshold that needs to be crossed, you know, having to prove oneself as as being worth more than they are. Uh, as happened as as is the case with society, unfortunately. But there's also you know like a family kind of splitting apart, or like you know friendships kind of splitting apart. Um, this idea of where somebody belongs, and that that qualm and the dilemma of of having to to prove oneself to others, but not to you know yourself. And that all boils up to the uh, the climax that I don't want to spoil, and it's one that to this day kind of like leaves me just feeling really cold, but like in a really good way. Where that's kind of how life is. You sometimes take a gamble, you try to do the right decision, and yet it just kind of backfires on you. And um, you're trying to do what's right, but in the end, you only know what's right after the fact, and and it kind of sucks. And I feel like in an indie film which is sometimes the best conveyor of this type of raw storytelling. Um, it, it takes some raw talent to be able to pull it off. And that's what Burnett has in spades. Yeah. That that's the film that I went with uh, my brother's wedding by Charles Burnett. What about you, Rachel? I haven't seen your film, but it sounds really good. Um, so for mine, I actually went with a film, which I haven't seen, you two haven't seen, and I'm 99.9% sure everybody listening to this podcast hasn't seen. If you were live in 1922, I sincerely apologize. So I went with The Flames of Wrath, which was created by Maria P. Williams. And I really want to talk about Williams more than the movie, because the movie no longer exists. It does not survive. Um, it is believed, I, I had read somewhere that it was in the Library of Congress, but now I think I just mixed my sources up. There is one frame that we know of that exists, and it is in um, UCLA's archive. It was it was a prominent scholar's papers. And so, yeah, um, we're never going to see this movie, most likely. Um, film loss was very common in that era. They were often either intentionally destroyed or simply neglected until they could no longer be used. So who's Maria Pete Williams? She was the first ever black woman to produce a movie in the United States. She also, uh, the roles were kind of more malleable back then. So she may have taken the role of director as well because producer and director weren't as separate at the time. She was not, however, the first black woman to direct a film, but she was definitely the first producer. And she also acted and it was a crime story and she played the attorney. Um, it may have been a Western, but the sources on that were a little wonky. So. She um, she was a school teacher, and then she was an activist. She was kind of the 1920s equivalent of a community organizer. And she continued with her activism for most of her life. And she married the owner of a theater. And they got into making movies together. And so they made this one, and it was the only one she ever participated in. 
And he died not long after, so I think that's why she stopped. But she was really an extraordinary person. She was published many times. She ran a newspaper for a while. This was all out of Kansas City. And then there's this crime film, and it kills me that we can't see it. But yeah, if you want to go see One Frame in UCLA, go go as a film scholar, I guess, because that's the only way you're going to see even a bit of this film. A single frame. That's so sad. Yeah. And they don't even say what's in the frame. Oh, wow. So it could be anything. It, it could be nothing at all. Like one guy kind of halfway through a frame or something. I don't know. At that point, I have to wonder, how do they even know what's a frame from this film? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It was part of this guy's papers. It was a crime story and she was the prosecuting attorney. There's some evidence it was successful and there was a good audience for it, but nobody knows for sure. It was also, um, in the terminology of the time, presented as the first film made entirely with a colored cast and crew. Wow. Again, the sources on this are really, really hard to figure out. Um, it's, it's interesting, though. I wish we could see it. And last films just upset me because you've got this beautiful piece of history and it's gone. Yeah, well, I think it's funny because I've, like, I've seen like documentaries that would talk about this. And the unfortunate thing back then was film was often looked at as a novelty. It wasn't something yeah. to be seen as preserved. So it's like, oh, this movie's done? Chuck it in the trash. Not to mention film was so flammable back then that it often did the job on its own. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It was almost treated like even less than a newspaper. Like, you've seen it. Why would you need to see it again? And yeah, they would just bend these. Yeah, set them on fire. It just didn't matter. Like, their existence did not matter. And um, unfortunately, that is especially true when it comes to um, you know, disposing of films that people didn't want you to see if they, um, you know, were racist or homophobic or were misogynistic and they re- they came across something that, you know, maybe a woman or a person of color made. Voices were silenced all of the time. Instead of archiving, mm-hmm. they could have, and this extended even after film was taken seriously. Um, a lot of films were just silenced outright and without any, uh, easy ways to duplicate or um, store them digitally, uh, especially digitally. Uh, it, it would be easy to make these films disappear without a trace, and it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, a little bit of her writing exists online, like a very tiny bit, but I have not found that one stupid frame. That where is it again? The Library of Congress? Or? Uh, UCLA. We're gonna have to do a trip. We're gonna have to take Road a trip. trip. I'm curious. Yes, we're, we're podcasters. We want to see your frame, please. <laughs> I, I'm no, like I'm serious. Like I, I, I hate an, an open end. Like I, I need to see what this thing looks like. Mm-hmm. But anyway, even if we can see the film or not, she was a real uh, figure in early film, and I just wanted to celebrate her a little. I, I really appreciate that. I think it's. Uh, there's there's no better way to end off that first half of uh, you know uh, highlighting important filmmakers when it comes to the black experience than uh, one of the very first. Uh, I think that's a huge groundbreaking achievement. So the second half, you know, I think it's almost fitting that we're starting right at the beginning of the filmmaking experience. How about the evolutions of the industry? Because like I just said, and to this day, you could still see a lot of uh, inequality and, you know, bigotry and like, you know, the odds being weighed against entire groups of people. But I want to highlight the the breakthroughs and, you know, the, the, the positive sides of things, the improvements that the, his, that the uh, industry's history has experienced over the course of, you know, over a hundred years. So do we have any 
great, wholesome, because we need wholesomeness nowadays, um, improvements to the film industry, film or television. I'll toss that in there in case, because uh, now that I know that we're branching out into television just in case, um, that we've that we've seen when it comes to how black storytelling is portrayed. I've got a, it's kind of an isolated example, but I think it's a really big one. I really enjoyed the fact that Jordan Peele made the main family in Us Black. And it's his reasoning because, I mean, everybody had already like anticipated the movie to be about race, which it wasn't. He put a black family in there because he never see, he, he never got to see middle-class suburban black families as leads in film. They're almost non-existent for the most part. Like if you see like a black person in suburbia, it's something like the blind side. So the fact that he made this point, like I'll have this family, they'll be black, but they'll just be kind of like regular suburban household, just a good old American family. And I just think that's really cool because somebody's going to take that influence and run with it. You know, not for any loaded or symbolic reason, literally just people being people and, and allowing uh, all walks of life to have that experience. Uh, I think that's, that's incredibly important. And I feel like that's the fact that us isn't even that old uh, films. Fatale was around when us came out. Cause that was one of the first films that I reviewed. I think that was back in 2019. That's really not that old. And the fact that it took that long, it's, it's not good. I mean, better late than never, but it's, it's not good that, um, that he still felt that it was necessary to do that because um, black families just aren't prominent enough in film as just, you know, a family, not for any other loaded reason. I mean, that's, it's not good. It's 2019. And and it's not rooted in stereotypes either. Cause that's it, it, like, if you do see it, it's always stereotypical. Like there's, you know, it's it, like Tyler Perry gets that criticism. It's like, you know, he, he's a very, He's very much part of the black community as far as art's concerned, but there's a lot of problems people have with his portrayal because it's often rooted in stereotypes that are ultimately kind of hurtful. Yeah, I I hear you. Um, and uh, a shout out to Us, which is also a really good film. And uh, Nope is just around the corner, which I know you're excited about. The trailers drop in on Super Bowl Sunday. I'm avoiding it. I don't <laughs> want to know a single thing. I don't want to know a single thing about that movie. Rachel, what about you? Well, this is a more general movement. And so I don't really have a specific example. It's mostly in television, but it's the recent drive in animated um, cartoons and series to have people voiced as closely as they can with um, actors of the same race or background. So, for example, the one, uh, the most recent one has been on The Simpsons, where several actors have now been replaced, and they now have a different actor voicing Carl, and I believe very soon they'll have Dr. Hibbert, or, no, they already have Dr. Hibbert as well. And so, it's not people just doing what they think a black voice sounds like, it's actual actors who are now getting that kind of exposure and work. And so, again, this is more of a television thing, but I think as more animated movies start to come out, that's going to happen more and more. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I know a lot of people are either on the fence or are uh, vehemently against this type of thing because, you know, acting is acting. Mm -hmm. And especially with voice work, because you don't see the person. So I think our society gave it more of a slide for a much longer time than they really should have. What bothers me about that argument is that, um, and you're absolutely right, I feel like that's why it got more of a pass for as long as it did. Um, I feel like that's that's such a big problematic way to look at it because um you're looking at a very very 
very backwards industry that felt that it was okay before. And we're trying to learn better now. And what you're effectively saying when you try to justify this is we keep the doors open for a select certain amount of people and not for everyone else. Instead of stymieing the job opportunities and capabilities of so many other diverse, you know, countless amounts of people, you're kind of you're kind of wanting to stay in the same kind of problematic rooted ways, which I think is really bad. And at the same time, you're trying to defend stuff like, you know, like um the very first thing of this, the very first case of this nature was was a poo because of that documentary. And the Simpsons has, has has overrun itself into the ground. Yeah, it's been thirty years too. That that's part of the problem. It started thirty years ago. It, it's yeah, well, yeah. It really was a different time when it first came out. Not that it made it all right, but you have so many golden episodes. Why you're getting so upset about this? It's like it, it, it's it's almost as if you're trying to find a reason for it to actually be good when it isn't. It's it's still a bad thing, and it's not like it was done to be offensive. But that, that's not the only form of racism. There, there's a form of racism where. You outwardly hate people of a different of a different race, but there's also the racism where you're enabling that that toxic environment to still exist because you don't see what's wrong with it. And I feel like that's what a lot of people are are overlooking when it comes to stuff like this. And I feel like it is a very important change. I think my only thing with the Simpsons was like you said, Simpsons Simpsons isn't just overlong. Like it just is that a show we really need anymore? Well, because Fox, I think Fox when you're, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Fox, Fox obviously cares, which I mean, they don't, well, Fox doesn't even own it. Disney owns them now. And they're still making money off them clearly. Um, and we've got at least two more seasons coming after this one. Yay. <laughs> oh, wow. But like my, my only thing with any stuff like this is I, I always question the intentions, even if it seems good, because when you're backtracking and replacing staff, I, there's something that it almost it sometimes leaves a bad taste in my mouth because it's like are you actually doing this because it's the right thing or are you doing it for the press because i think it would be smart like new stuff moving forward i think it's like yeah start doing that but when you start backtracking i think that's just like what are you doing are you virtue signaling because of the situation or is it like you actually genuinely think but i mean there's also i mean there's a lot of problems with the voice acting in general i mean like TV's the only place really real voice actors can exist anymore. Exactly. So it's like, it's already hard being a voice actor. I can only imagine what it's like being a person of color and a voice actor. The change that I wanted to, to bring up is very similar to yours, Rachel. Actually, it's it's not so much just um, allowing people to represent themselves uh, when it comes to these types of roles. But the the recent push to tell very specific histories that... Um, and and this is this is something where I see so many people be like, I can't believe we didn't know that this existed, and that's because it's been hidden for so long. Even though uh, thousands, sometimes millions of people were directly affected by a lot of these histories, and some examples that come to mind. Uh, first off, that recent documentary, uh, "Summer of Soul" by Questlove. So good, everybody go see it. I mean it. It's probably going to win best documentary, and it's good. I, I hope it does. It's sincerely one of the best music documentaries that I think I've ever seen. Also, the fact that 
so many people went to, to went to these events because there was like an ongoing festival, right? With all of these amazing artists like Sly and the Family Stone and Nina Simone and uh, oh God, like a young Stevie Wonder with one hell of a drum solo. In case you didn't know that he could drum, he was a prodigy at, at a young age. The Nina Simone performance moved me the most, I think. Oh yeah, well, I mean, Nina Simone's like one of the greatest. Uh, but the fact that something this massive and important I don't think a lot of people still know that it exists, which I think is kind of frightening. And it, that, you know, it's a fun documentary and everything, but it's an important one to at least allow you to, to know that this exists. And another example of a similar note, I'll never forget the huge response to the Watchmen miniseries, which is so many light years better than the film adaptation. I cannot even begin to describe, but the fact that it's it shied away from the Nixon background of the original graphic novel, and it went for, you know, the Juneteenth background when with the Tulsa race massacre. Yes, which was the hundredth anniversary of this spring, so there was a ton of stuff coming out about it at that point. Exactly. Yeah, uh, when Watchmen came out, that was uh, twenty nineteen, I think. Yeah, twenty nineteen. So almost a hundred years when Watchmen came out, the the miniseries. And people were like, wait, this is a real thing? And it's like, yeah, this actually happened to people. To this day, the effects of Juneteenth can still be effect, can, can still be felt in a lot of families who were affected by it. And that's kind of shocking that this isn't something that's being taught in schools. I don't know about now, but like in our lifetime when we were young, that wasn't taught in a lot of schools that we went to. It wasn't um, ever acknowledged or talked about. It took... It took a superhero miniseries to get people to learn that there was this massive massacre that killed countless of people and destroyed families and everything, all based on, you know, being racist. Like, it's crazy. And I'm hoping that that type of history lesson stops. And I hope that um, all stories are considered. On a little bit of a segue, one of the things that has been driven home to me, uh, every season we watch every Oscar movie, right? And... It's so much easier now to A, make a film and B, get a film out there and to be communicating with your viewers and all of these things. Like you you may do it on a smaller scale, but it's definitely the equipment. It's never been cheaper. Promotion you can do for free if, if you have to. And so, so many more voices are coming out and there are so many more filmmakers. Like yesterday I was talking to an Academy Award nominated filmmaker on Instagram. Like there's so much more opportunity now. And I think that's wonderful. There's no excuse not to make movies now. Everybody get your iPhones and go. Seriously. Well, that's one thing I like to highlight. Steven Soderbergh made one film on an iPhone that went into theaters, and then he made another phone on an iPhone for Netflix. Guy Madden did that all the time, too. And there's Sean Baker, who like broke into like broke an iPhone and was like shooting around Disney World. So, I mean, yeah, you can absolutely, if you're, if you're uh, inspired enough, please tell your story. There's a, uh, so many avenues now and i can't wait to see what's coming next well going back to uh she's got to have it that it's that kind of tenacity if you do it yourself because he did that movie on his own he put it together himself and that's actually how a lot of filmmakers from marginalized communities got their start it's you know the industry isn't going to give them a chance just off the bat they had to actually go out and do it themselves absolutely well I feel like uh, this has wrapped up uh, our episode for the evening. So before we get into our weekly recommendations, uh, where can you find us for subsequent episodes? 
So um, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the name The K-Cut. We like to post all about the movies that we have coming up um, and little fun facts and things like that. Our cinematic smorgasbord films this month are Pie, The Piano, and Au Revoir Les Enfants, or Goodbye Children. And then our collective film is Tokyo Fist, which I can't find anywhere. We'll have to talk after the show. <laughs> okay fair enough uh so i guess that's like your weekly recommendation then uh so uh who wants to give a weekly recommendation first i'll go okay so i picked no way out which is a film from 1950 and i knew that i had to talk about Sidney poitier at least once because he just passed away and he was such a giant in film that he, it, you can't ignore him and so this was one of his very early films. It was made in 1950. He plays a doctor who has just qualified and he started working in a kind of poor neighborhood. And he, since it's 1950, is getting a ton of abuse from his patients. And this was a part of the Hollywood machine. This was made by 20th Century Fox. This was direct, or produced by Zanuck, directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. It was incredible because this film was extremely realistic and it was honestly quite frank about the state of racism in the United States. And that was enormous at the time. And it's to the extent that uh, Criterion still has a content warning on it today and nobody ever does content warnings on Criterion. (laughs) So, um, and Poitiers great. Richard Widmark is great as the villain. And it's just fascinating. It's this little piece of film that nobody, it's kind of slipped under the radar and I really think it shouldn't be. Uh, speaking of slipping under the radar, I'm going to have to check that out. That actually sounds really interesting. James, what about you? I'm going to go with the movie Medicine for Melancholy, which is the no-budget debut of Barry Jenkins. Uh-huh. That makes sense. But yeah, it's a it's a fun small film. It's about uh, – it's kind of like this one-day romance that these two young black people have where um, – the woman who's the lead uh, as she ended up cheating on her uh, boyfriend, who is a um, wealthy and white gallery owner. And it's kind of just a movie. They're just kind of hanging out for the day. And it's just a variety of different you know, race related issues brought up. And um, I highly suggested if you're into that kind of thing, you know, the subject matter, or if you're like me and love no budget film. And uh, it's also shot in black and white. And it's really interesting because it kind of changes the tone and contrast with the color or the lack of color during certain scenes. But it's uh, it came out in 2008. And it's really interesting because this film is really good. And I don't understand why it took eight years for him to make another movie when he released Moonlight, because there's an eight year gap in between those two movies. Then again, if you watch Moonlight, it's it's a masterpiece. I do know that he was intending for um, if Beale Street could talk before I think, and uh, that was something that he was really sitting on. And it took making Moonlight for him to figure out exactly kind of the story that he wanted to tell with if Beale Street could talk, especially because there was a, a James Baldwin adaptation which meant a lot to him. So perhaps that's why. And both are very great films. Oh yeah, I adore both of them. They're both. Uh, masterpieces and uh, Barry Jenkins is one of the goats already he's already one of the greatest so I'm also going to go recent I'm going to go with somebody who has a bit of a smaller filmmaking career when it comes to you know Barry Jenkins who's already uh, rather small but still impactful uh let's go with somebody who won one for one and that's uh new time filmmaker Regina King with One Night in Miami which I feel like was so underrepresented during that year's award season that I think it's a joke um, I felt like it was such a touching portrayal of four 
fantastic icons and seeing what would it look like if you got uh, Cassius Clay, otherwise known as Muhammad Ali, uh, in the same room as Sam Cooke, you know, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X, and seeing what types of relationships they would have. You know, this is a, an adaptation of the, the story by Kent Powers. And I feel like it just is so sublime to watch. Powerful yet sublime. And I would love to see more from Regina King as a filmmaker, for sure. Alrighty. So thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of the K-Cut. And now we are going into the Elka. Elka.